0: So first of all, the uh, kind of the roll call coming in on Zoom this morning, we have Cynthia. So that's that's sure.
1: <laughs> some
0: of some of our regular Zoomers are are indisposed or out of town or various things many of them have kind of checked in with me so they're all accounted for even if not present and joining me here this morning i have uh john and aaron and dylan and rowan and uh joe and paul and jeff and chris and keith that's another reason why we don't have too many on zoom they're all here today (laughs) And I appreciate you coming, even though uh, I didn't announce in advance what I was going to talk about. I appreciate you allowing me to do that because I kind of like to just see what comes up (laughs) rather than making a commitment as far as five days in advance as to what it's going to be. And a couple of days ago, actually, something I had been thinking about doing here some Saturday, and it just seemed like this was an appropriate time for it. And it's been a while since we've last looked at a koan here. So I decided we would look at one that, in my humble opinion, is one of the most essential koans. I mean, it's. Right up there with Moo, uh, in terms of really cutting to the chase and getting to the heart of the matter. And it's uh, case 19 from the Moom Khan, the Gateless Barrier or Gateless Gate. And the title will ring a bell for most, probably all of you, is Ordinary Mind is the Way. So I'll begin just by reading the main case to this koan, which involves a uh, dialogue between the stodent, student, Joshu, who would go on to have a very illustrious career. And many koans feature Joshu as the master, not the student. In this koan, he's the student. And the, his teacher is nonsense who's infamous, among other things, for being the one who cut the cat in two. <laughs> That's a koan we have looked at. <laughs> Just to get over people's squeamishness about that. To explain that, no, there, were, there really wasn't a cat that was sacrificed there. But anyway, we're not gonna look at that koan today. Ordinary mind is the way, and this is the main case. Joshu earnestly asked Nansen, what is the way? Pretty good question for a student to ask the teacher. I'm surprised I don't get that, ask that, but more often. It's very rare to find such a student. Nansen answered, the ordinary mind is the way. Joshu then asked, should I direct myself toward it or not? Good. Good follow up question. Nonsense said, if you try to turn toward it, you go against it. Joshu asked, if I do not try to turn toward it, how could I know that it is the way? Nonsen answered, the way does not belong to knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion. Not knowing is a blank consciousness. When you have really reached the true way beyond all doubt, you will find it as vast and boundless as the great empty firmament. How can it be talked about on a level of right and wrong? At these words, Joshua was suddenly enlightened. So then the next two shorter pieces, Mumon, after whom this collection of koans is named, Uh, Mumon has a short commentary to all the koans in his collection. And his commentary to this particular case is uh, as follows. Nansen was asked a question by Joshu and Nansen's base was shattered and melted away. He could not justify himself, even though Joshu had come to realization He will have to delve into it for another 30 years before he can realize it fully. And then finally the verse. The spring flowers, the moon in autumn, the cool breezes of summer, the winter snow. If idle concerns do not cloud the mind, this is man's happiest season. Hopefully that's all crystal clear. Ordinary mind is the way. So what do we mean by ordinary? Natural enough question. Actually, I got uh, to have a bit of a discussion on this matter with an old friend of mine last night who I met to watch the first three quarters of the Cavs game over dinner. And uh, he's kind of a, he has a personal Zen practice. And uh, I, therefore I mentioned to him what I was gonna be talking about this morning. And, He was deeply interested and that was like the first thing he wanted to talk about. What is this ordinary mind? Is it everyday mind? I said, that's really pretty good. You know, I think that's that's pretty close to being uh, uh, a direct synonym for uh, for ordinary. And kind of calls to mind for for me, at least. uh, Charlotte Joko Beck's. Uh, text, which I often recommend to people just starting to practice everyday Zen. And that's a portrayal of Zen practice, not formal, but in our everyday life, all the challenges we encounter, uh, just as a course of our day to day activities. That's ordinary mind. So. Nonsense is telling Joshu that that's the way. It's not separate from our everyday existence. And that's a real important understanding to carry with us throughout our practice. Because it's natural. I think we all have a tendency to do this, to kind of segment practice from the everyday. So the everyday, we're not practicing anymore. This is, you know, this is my, impl- my job, my workplace, or this is my family life, or this is my entertainment life. So we have things pretty well compartmentalized and can adapt very quickly to the various facets of our life. But what is being presented by nonsense here is that this particular practice has to be carried forward in order to do it wholeheartedly everything is the realm for our practice. And it doesn't require exiting our everyday life in order to do it. You know, we're going to do that for eight hours here, which is why I put in the polite request for silence because it does help, help our practice. But it's also with the recognition that silence isn't always <laughs> I'm not saying go off from here into your cave, that actually wouldn't be very good. It's important that we do interact with the world. But in order to do that from a place of prajna, wisdom, and compassion flip side of, of wisdom, wisdom in action. We live our lives on the Bodhisattva path, which is out there in the world, being of service in all of our encounters. But formal practice when we do engage in that is to it's we could look at it as a skillful means in the language of the lotus sutra it empowers us to live our lives in such a fashion helps us to cultivate the the mind since this is ordinary mind that uh, nonsense is talking about cultivating this mind so that it can can practice within the ordinary within the everyday because that's where the practice truly takes place as we've been Coming back to a a few times in our early on study of the Lotus Sutra, that it's not about some abstract teachings, a set of truths, that the truths become real, come to life in our practice. Otherwise, you know, they're just ideas in our head that are rattling around. And. To look, the the verse in particular with uh, with an accounting of the seasons is uh, Really, I think a penetrating way to to access what's being presented to us here with ordinary mind is the way that in the our everyday day to day, it's not contingent upon special circumstances conditions, whether it's a sunny day or a rainy day. a warm day or a cold
2: day—it
0: doesn't matter. The fact that, so in other words, just everyday weather is the way. There's no special season to it. In fact, as uh, as the Pete Seeger song made famous by the birds taken from the old testaments, uh, Ecclesiastes expressed, you know, to everything is a season and in everything is the way. Everything without exception. So this question of nonce of Joshu's about the way really cut to the heart of the matter. It sounds so basic. It's like, well, how could he ask something like that? But that's what made it such a powerful question because it was so basic and we can get caught up in the questions about all these various individual practices and lose sight of that. What is the way? Is the way chanting, zazen, bowing? What's the secret sauce here? What makes it practice? And what doesn't make it practice is some particular thing. Because remember, there are no things remember, shunyata, all is empty. No thingness simply means that nothing is fixed, including what's ordinary. Doesn't take much reflection to, to, to get to the heart of that matter that ordinary changes pretty radically. Ordinary today is a lot different. Certainly over the span of my lifetime. Sheesh. <laughs> so we're constantly changing what's ordinary. So practice then becomes a matter of bringing our practice to social media, to electronic devices, to climate change, and all the myriad other things. They're constantly in a state of flux, and of course, mind as well. How can the ordinary be in constant change and the mind not be? The mind is no different. It's constantly changing as well. All is impermanent. All is interdependent. Part of Prajna is saying that oneness that we're all having similar uh, experience of, of the effects of the truth of impermanence and interdependence of no set thingness nothing exists in and of itself and to come back to the the final important essential term here is way down what is that And Tao can be said to have actually two meanings. And this is very germane to our study of the Lotus. Because one of those meanings is as a means. What's the way to do a certain task? That's looking at skillful means. So this, as Keith was planning lunch for today, what's what's a skillful means for feeding us all (laughs) and nourishing us, taking good care of us and the means to prepare that food. So that level of way runs throughout our lives. That's an important part of of our skill set to be able to practice interdependence with other beings in a helpful way, rather than all of us just retreat to our caves and dwell in the other meaning of way, which is the ultimate. But the ultimate only exists in its relationship with these individual ways, like preparing a meal. So any of these individual ways we can do outside of practice, and we're familiar with that. Most of our lives get run on autopilot for good solid biological reasons efficient don't don't expend any more effort energy on it than is necessary but one of the things we awaken to as a result of practice is that when we actually start disengaging that autopilot setting and are fully present and engaged. There's kind of an enlightening that immediately occurs that this is actually the way to live our life. Speaking of way. So this is where the ultimate way intersects with the individual way. And then we become aware of all these core truths of Buddhism and how they're constantly manifesting all around us. So that the grist for Dharma teachings, Dharma talks is never far away. It's always present. I was watching last night before I went off to waste a little time watching the calves and another one of their hapless efforts. <laughs> but before that, I was watching uh, a nature program uh, set in the uh, uh, Scot- Scot- Scottish Highlands. And there was uh, a scene in there that uh, called to mind. It was kind of like a wildlife uh, scene of the parable of the burning house, only instead of a burning house, this was now a nest that was about to become flooded. And the birds, the parents had a couple of chicks in this nest and they're trying to get them out of the nest. (laughs) <laughs> just like the father in the parable, trying to get his children out of the burning house. So I go, oh, <laughs> this is remarkable. <laughs> and just like in the parable, the birds were successful. They got them out of there, although they, they had not fledged yet. See, that's what the challenging part was. They weren't quite ready to exit the nest, but they had to. Circumstances were such they had to act. But as viewers, of course, we're in suspense, are they going to get out? But I've watched enough nature programs to know they're getting out. (laughs) (laughs) They've got their funding they need to look after. (laughs) It's not going to be very uh, uh, good for that if, if they have all these children across the country watching birds get flooded out. So, you know, they're going to have happy endings. But or the ordinary way, the ordinary mind, the ordinary way of our lives is all around us. just need to bring that Prajna, the eye of Prajna, that middle eye, to, to bear witness to it, to awaken to it. And when we do that, now, we that that is the life of the Bodhisattva, who's practicing for the benefit of all beings. not for the practice, for the benefit of oneself. And, of course, that relationship of a parent and her or his children is such a powerful example of that, just like with these birds. The parents, the children, the father in the burning house parable, and his children. Of course, the Bodhisattva way. Everybody's our child, our parent, our spouse, you know, they're all bear that that level of connectedness. Even though in the conventional sense, obviously, we relate to them differently. But this is where the Tao in its ultimate sense, comes into play that even though in the conventional realm, you know those are different relationships, and it's it's a skillful means to treat them as such. But yet in the Tao, the teaching would be they they are no different. And that's important to be able to respond that. So one of the things, again, from ordinary daily life, at least for me, uh, involved going up to Detroit a week or two ago to the Van Gogh exhibit that was taking place in their library, or in their art museum. <laughs> uh, and Van Gogh, you know, it's been common place in art to depict the everyday, the ordinary, Uh, Van Gogh had a particular gift for that, though, and kind of in his depictions also showing hints of of the Tao so that you could actually, through a a deep immersion in his work, you can come to actually appreciate this uh, ordinary mind is the way, you know, just Uh, One of the one of his famous works that was on exhibit there is of his bedroom. I I don't know how many of you have have seen this before, I suspect many of you have. So this is uh, this isn't some elaborate. Bedroom like like you might expect to see in uh, a Rembrandt era painting where it would really be lavish and so on this is this is pretty bare bones i mean he was kind of living in poverty <laughs> but yet you know there's this light source that's, and of course the way he would play with colors so richly uh, plays a role in so much of his work so it's super ordinary other than maybe more artwork than you would typically see. But that didn't cost them anything other than the cost of the canvases and the paint. But otherwise, a yeah. couple of chairs better small bed did have two pillows. though. That was, that was the excess. There. <laughs> but yet there's something that kind of draws us. Uh, There are a couple of other works from here I wanted to share as well. Yeah, he he did several paintings of just shoes. You can't get more ordinary than these. These are not, you know, floor shines. they're not (laughs) high end. Uh, These are kind of like peasant's shoes. Uh, In fact, not this painting, but one of his other paintings of of shoes, which wasn't on on display there, unfortunately. Being a fan of the uh, 20th century philosopher Heidegger, one of Heidegger's uh, essays on the, I think it was titled The Origin of the Work of Art or something like that. He talks about Van Gogh's uh, shoes a different painting and really this intersection of the, the Dao with the capital d and small d Dao uh, so these shoes are out there working the fields and and uh, you know these at least are are not showing too much wear and tear or dirt but uh, the the other painting that Heidegger was writing about, had all of that <laughs> so it was kind of pointing to that kind of uh, rudimentary existence growing uh, food and yet paint the reason why he was painting them was to show the uh, the ultimate shunyata running through that ordinary object and Heidegger uh, you know, in, in a way that art critics just were going, oh, my God, <laughs> he needs to stay away from commenting on art because he was going. <laughs> but it was a way that really you know, touched me and a lot of other people pretty deeply. And I remember there was uh, an exhibit at the Cleveland Museum that did include that painting. So that was like heavy duty experience for me. I just wanted to camp out there for the, for the afternoon and become absorbed by it. But again, just ordinary mind, ordinary life is the way. So let me just a couple more. I thought that these were really good examples of it. Yeah, and there are still lifes that are kind of elaborate. This is one. It's far less so. It's not like you look at those oranges and go, "Boy, I'd like—I'd love to grab one of those." These are pretty ordinary oranges. <laughs> Oops. But yet, this is, this is, you know, real, and we can see it again with with his uh, special gift for lighting. Uh, We can see how it's uh, kind of reflecting something a little deeper, more profound. So and I want to spend a a bit of time looking at this notion of that we got in uh, Muma or in the the main case itself rather about it's not about knowing or not knowing because I remember this came up a week or so ago uh, I think in in a discussion and I think John brought up a point that I kind of went to that basic subject. And that was well before I even looked at this koan and decided I was going (laughs) to talk about it. But it's a really important point about it's it's not about knowing or not knowing. So it's kind of nice that we did the uh, the Hoki because Towards the end, it has that uh, jarring <laughs> phrase about like a fool, like an idiot. And I know that used to give me trouble in my <laughs> days of practice. It's like, I ain't no fool. <laughs> yes, <sir. laughs> uh, and to recognize that that kind of that fear is what is behind our needing to know and that just becomes yet another kind of like uh, almost uh, a means of acquiring power knowledge gets used as power One of our great 20th century thinkers uh, that that had some very insightful uh, things to say about power was the French philosopher Foucault. Uh, And he would study how power lies behind uh, a lot of our endeavors and knowledge is way up there. In fact, there's that saying, knowledge is power. (laughs) (laughs) That's really very truthful, very honest. It's exactly the case. So with our practice of just completely opening ourselves up, that's like a fool, like an idiot. It's not about knowing or not knowing. Because there's certainly this tendency uh, that you sometimes find in Zen, that it becomes like an anti intellectualism. So they go to the the not knowing. And that's as, as it's expressed, that's just blank consciousness. It's not very helpful either. The knowing is predicated on that core duality. Knowing requires a knower and an object that's known. So in the conventional sense, you know, we could speak of that. Do you know such and such? The capital of uh, Pennsylvania. And sometimes people think they know something and they don't. And somebody corrects them. And that can be dicey. I remember a, a friend of mine who was actually a native of Scotland telling me about when he was in elementary school and they were studying world geography and his teacher, they, they just happened to be talking about Scotland at the, during that class and she presents the capital of scotland as being glasgow and he, <laughs> he 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 was a bit of a smart aleck he kept that edge to him throughout life when i got to to know him too in a charming way though and he, he made the comment well let's get come as quite a surprise there are people in edinburgh <laughs> He said, she did not like (laughs) because this back to the sense of power, knowing. So to go beyond this knowing and not knowing, because if we don't, we cannot satisfy that kind of spiritual uh, longing that brings us to a path because that involves the the drive to actually be able to to ex- experience and come to some uh, deeper awareness of the boundless going beyond all limits which means going beyond the realm where knowledge can even come into play so that's why in zen yeah, we can say it's not about knowing knowing has its has its realm that's helpful you know, if I have a plumbing issue, I'm I, trying to get somebody in the house that knows plumbing. And if he told me it's not about knowing or not knowing, I'm probably going <laughs> to the next person on my list. <laughs> no, you need to know this. But flipping that around, you know, if I'm looking f- t- to explore, uh, the deeper spiritual side of things. And I encounter somebody, somebody that does know, now I'm going further down my list. <laughs> it's like, no, that's a turn off there. So there's a place for knowledge, like the seasons. Yeah, to everything, there's the season. To everything, there's uh, a degree of, of knowledge sometimes and sometimes, Knowledge can get in the way. It can only go so far. It's a skillful means, but it's not it. And we can't put it into that role because it's just not suited for it the reason it's not suited for it is because like i was just uh explaining it's rooted in that dualistic way of seeing things of subject object that are fixed to have knowledge means you fixed something it is what it is i've i've kind of put it in its container in its silo So the Tao with the capital D is without any boundaries. And that's beyond knowing or not knowing. That's like a fool, like an idiot. So when we in our everyday life. Go through it with that. Understanding. We can actually react to things in a far different way, rather than becoming so immediately confrontational, which knowledge kind of supports, supports us in. Because I know. And you don't seem to. So yeah. And that immediately tends to shut down any ability for skillful interaction. But if we go in with all honesty and sincerity, with openness, with don't know mind, beginner's mind, we can, we can actually, have skillful dialogue, interaction. It's not demeaning, just loaded with with, uh, conflict. So I think that's enough for me. I'm gonna bow out here. Plug in the speaker. We still have this afternoon. we have a shorter session, but uh, more, even more discussion period then, hopefully. <laughs> so it's not just more new time. So what are your thoughts?
3: Do you like, Joshua? I, I had one thought um, while you were talking, especially because you were talking about art, mm-hmm. um, which was just the idea that, um, well, I have one sort of definition of art as being um, ordinary objects um, that are simply showcased or highlighted. Um, so if the artist is bringing that awareness to whatever it is that they want like to present, and in a sense, um, our practice is the same way um, because we, you know, go through um, our day on autopilot or whatever habitual responses and these kinds of things. And then we do various things throughout the day to um, heighten our awareness to, um, to to what's what's really happening. You know, um, so so there's there's various practices that we can do to kind of remind ourselves to be. Um, which is sort of like the artist, you know, highlighting or showcasing um, The Ordinary. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, I had a thought, um regarding the to go on, which was uh, kind of the way of being bringing our uh, original mind right to the, each moment, uh, but then I guess kind of Digging a little deeper into uh, that original mind and your the original, the original place. And
0: what that really means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the original mind is uh, yeah. we a term that we we've been using quite a bit in conjunction with the Lotus Sutra is Buddha nature. That's our original nature, our original mind, our original face before we were born. So it's taking, and we also looked at this, it's taking it beyond just a mere biological, looking at our ancestors. That's one, just one part of it, but it's the entirety. So, I mean, even... Joni, Johnny Mitchell, just in uh, my private memorial for David Crosby as listening to a live recording of his as of as of late, uh, where he closed his set with the song Woodstock, you know, we are stardust. So I mean, if we want to look at our original face, original mind, it's, it's everything. And that's shunyata, that's the ultimate.
3: And that's what we can't
0: grasp because there's nothing to grasp. Science is uh, coming
1: around to that
0: (laughs) realization. 20th century was pretty rich for that in terms of scientific uh, uh, theorizing. They were becoming more and more Buddhist. And many of them acknowledged that. It's not us projecting onto them. They were (laughs) saying, yeah, that's the one religion we we can relate to. They seem to be onto something. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, I was most drawn to the second half of the poem where it turns and Joshu brings up the question of knowing which is not known, which yeah. I think is a really core question. Um, and I get the sense that this desire for knowing is a desire for a kind of safe experience, Right. right. And a kind of experience where you actually have certainty what the experience is. Mm -hmm. And in any experience, which is beyond um, knowing and not knowing, um, there's nothing that's known or not known. But I'd like to ask, what is it that actually we fear about that? And what is it that we fear that creates this desire for having a safe experience?
0: Yeah, yeah. Good good question. And I'll put this in the context of of something that I even mentioned within the past week or two, but I've brought it up occasionally to make it real for me in my practice is uh, uh, that was kind of like the the big uh, quandary for me in terms of uh, my barrier, uh, this sense, and it was actually Tiger Dan Leighton that I gave expression uh, of it to during a session session that he was leading. And it was about Prajna. And how will I know if it's (laughs) project? if it's wisdom? Because we have this sense that, well, I need to have some uh, security in that. It's not enough just to say, you know, it's wisdom, but rather I I need to have all this backup for it. (laughs) So how will I know? And that was, uh, and he, uh as any good Zen teacher he he didn't really give me <laughs> he just kind of sat back and said, Oh praja <laughs> and uh so it left me to to go on and, and sit with that some more but that was all that was necessary. I was able to kind of uh <laughs> get that out <laughs> cough it out and uh And that kind of opens some things up. And it's a matter then of letting go of that need to know, to have all of the support so that if anybody questions me, I've got all all the right uh, evidence here. Just take a look at all this. And this is why it's about practice so that we can come to actually become very intimate with it. It's not about knowing and not knowing, but it is about intimacy in terms of really, it's the study of the self, Dogen was talking about in Foucault's Zenit. The study of the self isn't to to know the self, it's to go beyond knowing, but to really Become intimate with it, become one with it. And that's that's going beyond knowing. So it's not the blank consciousness of not knowing. Actually, our consciousness is uh, is just filled, but it's not about knowing either. We've let go of that too. So that's transcending that. Duality, and so I mean, in in some uh, religious traditions, that's where faith really comes front and center. That's going beyond knowing and not knowing, because there is that leap, the Kierkegaardian leap. That's that's about going beyond knowing. So it's not unique to to Zen or to Buddhism. More generally, I think any religion ultimately comes to that. Because it's not about knowing.
3: It can't be about knowing because knowing is always limited. Right. That's the easy part not knowing it's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right right i remember in my background with um, transcendental meditation people would ask well you know when you're when you're meditating how do you know that you transcend it and you know the answer was well you don't and you, you couldn't know um, you might notice when you come back from that state of mind but um and it's the same with with our practice of sitting meditation you know It could be pleasant, it could be unpleasant, it could be whatever it is. But I do believe that there is a, the traces of our practice um, do become manifest in our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have the Dharma Seals, for example, you know, that let us know um, that we're either suddenly or gradually um, seeing the world and interacting with the world in much, much different ways than perhaps we did before. We're mm-hmm. more open, we're more compassionate, we're more, you know, it seems to be the natural um, uh, outcome, um, if we will, mm-hmm. of, of our practice. So, so although we um, um, can't define um, what exactly is happening, we can see the, the, uh, the results. And that's why I like Buddhism, because um, it's not a matter of faith, it's a matter of practice mm-hmm. and, and being able to, um, to, to see or notice or other people might see or notice in us, mm-hmm. ways in which we, um, we've evolved or changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if there's anything to be said about the nature of this emptiness, you know, the, the Dharma Seals, I can point in that direction of... Um, what is that consciousness like? Um, yeah. <clears> the <throat> yeah. brief going over the dharma seals.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. The, we have talked about it in a long time. Yeah. the The, the so three on. the three uh, original dharma seals were were uh, dukkha or suffering, yeah. uh, impermanence, and no self or yeah. interdependence. Uh, but uh, some people uh, in the forefront here in, in more recent times would be Tigna Nhat have added, kind of as an offset to Dukkha, that Nirvana belongs in there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because there is the, the relief, the release from Dukkha, which is what the Four Noble Truths is all about, and practice more generally So the original free, and then the, the addition of, of uh, Nirvana to it. Yeah.
1: Oh, Mark. Right. Yeah, hi, Dean. Uh, this is a very uh, timely, appropriate uh, teaching for, for me um, right now with this. Uh, Keeping bearing in mind ordinary mind during my own personal extraordinary time that I've been going through the past week with um, having had surgery just uh, um, eight days ago um, and uh, I, and after ha- having practiced uh, this uh, way for the past few years um, I sent you a text yesterday and and I said you know just in the in the past week and I, I, I didn't even I just typed this text out to you and it just sort of flowed out I, I, I wasn't like thinking oh what am I going to type but I, looking back on it, I said, I'm trying to stay neutral and practice non-attachment to, to so many things during this, during this time. And what, one of the big ones or some of the big ones were all the inconveniences, you know, during the past last week, there's been some complications post-surgery, um, and, and the, uh. Um, what was it? The practitioner, the healthcare practitioners' imperfections. Also, <laughs> awesome. you, you should be um, a- <laughs> Yeah. But uh, you know, just kind of like the pain, the discomfort, the um, all the associated potential drama that could be generated during this time. You know it's like it it it, it, it could it, you can just see how uh, you know during challenging or difficult times um, you know without being mindful and without having some sort of a practice, you know you could so easily go off the rails and uh, you know uh, so i. Oh, so I'm grateful for that. The only other comment I had was, <laughs> I thought when you were talking about, um, I think it was Bob Dylan. Um, uh, there's another group called. There's a song called "Everyday People" by Sly and the Family Stone.
0: Absolutely,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a That was a top Billboard hit in 1968. Great song. <laughs> Not that not that I'm old enough to remember that, but um oh, yeah. <laughs> I went and we, I googled it and I looked at the lyrics and it's it's uh I, I wonder if they were practicing Buddhism or but uh, it's it it fits right in with the teaching. Yeah. yeah. Uh. Thank you. Well,
0: I'll have to remember that one for, if I ever teach this koan again, I need to incorporate that song for sure. So, looks like we're good.
3: All right. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Who does way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it.